0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was just after 3.30 a.m. on the night of July 3rd, 1996, when Dana Rollins was driving towards Ferry Reach Park, located on St. George's Island on the northeastern edge of Bermuda. A well-known hiking area with beautiful beaches, the 64-acre park was the second largest on the island. Rollins, a local DJ, was anxious to get home to bed after a long night at the club. But one of his friends... Coy Fox, had asked him for a lift out to the state park, where he had pitched a tent. It was out of his way, but Rollins felt sorry for the guy, who was working odd jobs to make ends meet. Also in the car that night were three of Rollins' co-workers, Angela, Sharon, and Antonio. They all worked at Aretas, a nightclub in the town of St. George's, Bermuda's original colonial capital the group of five Bermudians laughed and sang as they drove the narrow, bumpy road towards the park. Then, suddenly, they spotted something in the middle of the road. "'What the hell?' said Angela, who was sitting in the front seat. "'Had someone hit a dog and left it on the road?' Dana Rollins slammed on the brakes. The car's headlights revealed a crumpled form on the asphalt." But it wasn't a dog or any other type of animal. It was a human body. It's a woman, shouted Angela. The group of co-workers got out of the car and moved closer. Lying in front of them was a young, blonde-haired girl. She was almost naked and she was covered in blood. Her ripped and bloodied clothing was strewn across the road. It looked like the girl's throat had been slashed. Dana knelt down beside her. He could see her chest moving. She was still alive. Can you hear me? He asked the girl. She turned towards him and blinked. Tears ran down her face. He felt for her pulse. It was weak. Her lips were moving and she was trying to talk. But no sound came out. Dana yelled for the others to run to find a phone booth to call 911. He pressed his hand on her neck to try to stop the bleeding. He held her hand. Hang on, hang on, he said to her. One of the girls covered her nearly naked body with a blue towel from the car. Moments later, two local policemen arrived at the chaotic scene. One of the women standing in the road was screaming uncontrollably, while one of the men was throwing up. Three others were kneeling beside the victim in the middle of the road. The police are here. You're going to make it, said Dana, holding the girl's hand. But it was too late. The young girl lying in the middle of an isolated road in Bermuda, was dead. I'm Catherine Fogarty and in this podcast I'm bringing you the true story of a dream trip to a tropical destination that ended in murder. A young Canadian teenager's adventure that turned horribly wrong and forced her devastated family into a decade-long search for justice in a foreign country. But truth and justice would prove elusive in a conspiracy of silence designed to protect the secrets of the beautiful island paradise. Would anyone ever pay for the young Canadian girl's death? A murder so heinous that it would eventually attract the interest of a well-known British human rights lawyer who also just happened to be the wife of the British Prime Minister. This is evil in paradise. It's haunting me, Allison. It also feels like a really bad nightmare. She was there to have fun. It's there. She never made it up. Rebecca Jane Middleton and Jasmine Means were best friends. Growing up in the city of Belleville, Ontario, the two teenagers had been inseparable since they were seven years old. 16-year-old Rebecca, or Becky as everyone called her, was the youngest in her family and the only girl. And living with two older brothers, she had developed into more of a tomboy, preferring sweatpants over dresses and sneakers over sandals. Blonde, blue-eyed, and petite Becky was a popular grade 11 student at Centennial Secondary School in Belleville. She played baseball in the local softball league, loved to go sailing on the Bay of Quinty, and worked part-time at a neighborhood gas station to earn spending money. Rebecca's parents, Dave and Cindy Middleton, had separated four years earlier when she was 12, a big adjustment for any teenager. Cindy Middleton had remarried and Rebecca lived mostly with her mom and stepdad, Wayne Bennett, but also loved spending time with her dad who lived close by. And for extra special attention, Becky would visit her grandparents. Both sides of the family also lived in Belleville. Rebecca had been hurt by the family breakup, but fortunately, her best friend Jasmine, Jazzy, as she affectionately called her, had been a big support for her during the divorce. Jasmine's parents had split up when she was small and her dad, Rick Means, lived in Bermuda with his new wife, stepson, and their baby. Jasmine had been to the tropical British colony to visit her dad, She'd often go during the summer holidays, and as the last day of school approached in June of 1996, Jasmine was heading back to Bermuda again for six weeks. But this time, she really wanted her friend Becky to come. Now, Rebecca just had to convince her parents. Dave Middleton and Cindy Bennett weren't keen on their teenage daughter traveling to Bermuda. It was a long way away. But the girls had been pestering them for a couple of years already. Rebecca's dad had actually grown up with Jasmine's father, Rick Means. He was a nice guy, and Dave Middleton was certain the girls would be looked after. Cindy Bennett was good friends with Jasmine's mom, who also assured her that her ex-husband would take good care of the girls in Bermuda. And from what the Middletons had read, Bermuda was considered to be one of the safest islands for tourists. Dave and Cindy finally agreed to let Rebecca go. On June 20, 1996, best friends Becky and Jazzy boarded an Air Canada flight to sunny Bermuda. For the two 16-year-olds, it was going to be the vacation of a lifetime. They couldn't wait to swim in the island's warm turquoise waters and hang out on one of the many pink sandy beaches. They hoped to make some new friends, and Becky would be celebrating her 17th birthday there. BFFs on a dream trip. Jasmine and Becky felt like the luckiest two girls alive. Bermuda is a self-governing British Island Territory, located in the North Atlantic Ocean, 1,000 kilometers due west of the state of North Carolina. Well known for its pink sandy beaches, coral reefs, colorful houses, and Bermuda shorts, it is a tropical playground for the rich and famous. The well-heeled holiday destination is actually comprised of 181 separate islands and has a land area of only 54 square kilometers. Discovered by a Spanish explorer in 1505, it became a British crown colony in 1664. Today, it maintains a unique cultural history due to a medley of British, African, Portuguese, North American, and West Indian influences. The island is home to the largest British naval and military base in the Western Hemisphere, and after World War II, the territory became a prominent offshore financial center and tax haven. But tourism remains the island's most important industry with luxury hotels, resorts, and cruise ships drawing more than a million international tourists every year and generating over one billion million in revenue. Mark Twain once said, you can go to heaven if you want, but I'd rather stay in Bermuda. And it was just another day in paradise when Jasmine's dad, Rick Means, Picked up the two giddy teenagers at the Bermuda airport on that June day in 1996. First order of business was a tour of the island. Rick took the girls to Hamilton, Bermuda's capital city. With its pastel colored colonial buildings, high end stores, and five star hotels, it didn't take long for the girls to get lost in the souvenir shops and clothing boutiques. It was so different from their hometown of Belleville. And everyone seemed very friendly. And while Hamilton was a beautiful city, Rick warned the girls that there were areas of the port town that were off limits. Where some of the local unemployed youth hung out and where drugs were sold. Rick also told the girls not to rent scooters. A popular yet potentially deadly mode of transportation on the island. Many a reckless tourist had met their fate on the island's very British, winding, narrow roads. The girls could take buses, or Rick would drive them where they wanted to go. After a few days of exploring the island, Becky and Jasmine had settled into a relaxing routine. They would head to the beach in the mornings, and do more sightseeing in the afternoons. They liked hanging around the quaint town of St. George's on the northeast end of the island, exploring its twisting alleyways and back streets, or sitting down by the town dock watching locals catch fish. Despite a little discomfort from their requisite sunburns, the girls were having a ball on their summer vacation. On Tuesday, June 27th, Becky's 17th birthday, Rick Means and his wife Lynn surprised her with a cake and gifts. It was the first birthday she had not spent with her family, and she missed them. She wrote a postcard to her mom and another to her dad. She'd probably get home before the cards arrived, but she wanted them to know she was thinking of them. A week after the birthday celebrations on July 2nd, Rick Means and his wife drove Becky and Jasmine into St. George's. The two girls from Canada were meeting up with three British boys they had met a few days earlier. Russell McCain, Ben Turtle, and Jonathan Cassidy were all mates at a private boys' school in Belfast. And Jonathan's father, was a police constable in St. George's. The group had agreed to meet at the White Horse Tavern, a small restaurant and club that attracted mostly tourists in the town square. Rick Means told Becky and Jasmine to call him for a ride home later that night. But not too late, as he had to get up for work early the next day. Becky and Jasmine walked around town for a while before a tropical downpour sent them scurrying into some of the local tourist shops. The rain didn't last too long so by 7.30 they were at the White Horse Tavern. The group of teenagers listened to music, talked, and despite their ages, drank. One beer turned into two, two turned into three, and three Turned into shots of liqueur. Becky captured the group's drunken fun on her new camera, a birthday present from her parents before she left for Bermuda. As the night wore on, more drinks were consumed, and the group's friendly banter turned more flirtatious. Jasmine and Russell were enjoying each other's company, as were Becky and Jonathan. Later that evening, Another young tourist couple at the tavern offered to drive the girls home on their way back to Hamilton. But Becky and Jasmine declined their offer. It was too early, and besides, they were having way too much fun. When the bar closed at 1 a.m., the teenagers decided to continue the party at Jonathan Cassidy's house, which was a 10-minute walk from the tavern. When they got to Jonathan's place, Ben Turtle passed out in the living room, while the two new couples hung out separately in the upstairs bedrooms. At around 2 a.m., Jasmine told Becky they had to go. Her dad would be mad that they had stayed out so long, and now it was too late to call him for a ride. Jasmine decided to get a cab instead. The two girls waited out in front of Jonathan's house, but a taxi never showed up. They called two more times. Still no cab. It was now 2:15 in the morning, and they were way past their curfew. Jasmine called the dispatcher again, who promised to send a car. Jonathan Cassidy waited with the girls while the other two boys were already asleep inside. Finally, Jonathan headed back inside, leaving Becky and Jasmine waiting for a cab at the end of his driveway. At around 2.30, he looked out his bedroom window. The girls were there standing in the dark by the road, but still no taxi. Jonathan Cassidy's head hit the pillow and he passed out he didn't hear the sounds of the motorbikes approaching. 45 minutes. That's how long it had been since Jasmine's first call to the taxi company. And while a few had driven by, they ignored the two teenage girls waving outside the darkened house. They waited. Jasmine's watch showed 3 a.m. when a young man pulled up on a red motorbike. Do you have any cigarettes, he asked the teenagers. He had a Bermudian accent. The girls said they didn't. He introduced himself, saying his name was Dean Lottimore. Five minutes later, two more men passed by on another motorbike. Spotting the girls, they made a U turn. Hey, what's up? They said to Dean as they high fived. They obviously knew one another. The driver of the second bike offered the girls a ride home after hearing that they were waiting for a cab. No thanks, said Jasmine. The bike looked old, and besides, they didn't have helmets. Not to worry, said one of the men. If the police stopped them, they would say they left the helmets at the bar. Come on, he said with a smile. Jasmine felt responsible for their current predicament. They should have left the bar and gone straight home. Now, she wasn't sure what to do. No buses, no taxis, no phone. And by now, her dad would be furious. Fine, she said to the men on the motorbikes. You can take us. She would go with Dean, and Becky, who was smaller, could ride in between the two guys on the other bike. Drive slow, she yelled after them as they sped off. By 3:45 a.m., Jasmine and Dean pulled up in front of her dad's home in Flats, an area located in the center of the island. She was surprised that Becky wasn't already there, since she and the two other guys had left first and were going much faster. Where were they? Why aren't they here? She asked Dean. The young man just shrugged. Who are those guys? And are they dangerous? Dean shrugged again. Will they hurt Becky? asked Jasmine. Finally, Dean spoke up. I was trying to give you the eye, he said. You shouldn't have let her get on that bike. Jasmine ran into her house. She had to tell her father. Becky was missing, and she was in danger.
0: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: On the day before, Rebecca Middleton disappeared into the dark, misty night with two strangers on the back of a beat-up motorbike. Kirk Mundy was spending time with his pregnant girlfriend, Keisha. The 21-year-old Jamaican had lived most of his life in Bermuda with his family in Hamilton in an area called Back of Town, a neighbourhood most white tourists never ventured into. Like many locals from the wrong side of the tracks, Mundy had no job and spent most days hanging around town with other young, aimless Bermudian men. Seven months earlier, he had been charged with armed robbery of a bank vehicle, but was out on bail awaiting his trial. Mundy had a bad reputation around back of town. And younger guys, like his friend, Justice Smith, looked up to him. 17-year-old Smith had also run into trouble with the law, and had been charged with obstructing police officers and resisting arrest. The two friends were often seen driving around the island on a beat-up black motorbike that was owned by Kurt Mundy's girlfriend. And on the night of July 3rd, they were heading to a reggae club called Moonglow in St. George's. Maybe they'd meet up with some tourists who were often loose with their cash and always happy to buy a few rounds for the locals. And despite having a pregnant girlfriend at home, Mundy was always on the lookout for some fun with foreign girls who liked to party. Rick Means was jolted awake by his daughter Jasmine. She was frantic, saying something about getting a ride home with a friend but Becky had gone with someone else and was now missing. She was too afraid to tell her dad Becky was with two men, strangers who had taken off into the night on a motorbike. Rick grabbed his car keys and raced out the door with Jasmine. It was almost 4 a.m., and the dark, narrow streets on the island were deserted. Where could Becky be? They headed towards the town of St. George's where the girls had been partying. But there-
0: normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.
1: There was no sign of Becky. After searching, with no luck, Rick and Jasmine decided to circle back. Maybe Becky was already home. But when they returned to the Means house, she wasn't there. Rick called the police to report Becky missing. A Bermudian officer took down the information, but didn't seem too interested. The island police got these kinds of calls all the time. Another teenage tourist out partying. Typical. Rick was advised to call back in 24 hours if Becky didn't turn up. Frustrated, Rick hung up the phone, not knowing that minutes earlier, the police radio dispatcher had received an emergency call about a possible assault out on Ferry Reach Road. It had been a quiet night for constables Stephen Simmons and Frank Vasquez. Earlier, they had stopped a guy on a red motorbike for a traffic offence. Nothing out of the ordinary. For the most part, Bermuda was relatively safe. And the street cops, or bobbies as they were known locally, didn't even carry guns. Most of the crime was drug-related, and sometimes tourists got robbed. On that particular night, a rainstorm had sent many tourists and partiers home earlier, so officers Simmons and Vasquez had dozed off in a parking lot. Then, suddenly, their car radio came alive. Reports of a naked woman lying in the middle of Ferry Reach Road said the dispatcher. Simmons and Vasquez threw on their siren and headed towards the state park. After reporting Becky missing and getting no help from the police, Rick and Jasmine headed back out into the misty night to continue their search. Rick knew the island well, but there were so many remote areas... It was next to impossible to look everywhere in the dark. By 6 a.m. as the sun was coming up, they returned home exhausted. But still, no Becky. Rick wasn't sure what to do. Maybe she had passed out somewhere and she'd show up later that morning. He was angry that the girls had disobeyed his instructions to phone him for a ride home and they had obviously been drinking. There would be some tough consequences, but now he just needed to get Becky home safe. Then at 7 a.m. the phone rang. It was the police. They needed him to come to St. George's police station right away. They wouldn't say why. Rick and Jasmine jumped into the car and sped towards St. George's. Hopefully, the police had located Becky, and she'd be waiting for them at the police station. But, before they reached the town, a news report crackled over the car radio. A young, white woman had been murdered out on Ferry Reach Road. Rick Means suddenly veered his car towards Ferry Reach Road. Moments later, They saw the lights of police vehicles, fire trucks, and an ambulance. It was a chaotic scene. Stay here, Rick yelled at his daughter as he jumped out of the car. Jasmine did as she was told. She could see a dozen or so people standing around. There was blood on the road. Then she heard her dad scream. He was over by the ambulance and he was bent over, retching onto the pavement. At that moment, she knew they had found Becky. It was the 4th of July, America's Independence Day, when former spouses Dave and Cindy Middleton from Belleville, Ontario, boarded a flight to Bermuda. The day before, an ordinary Wednesday had turned out to be the worst day of their lives when they were told that their only daughter, 17-year-old Rebecca Jane, was dead. Murdered in Bermuda while on holiday with her best friend, Jasmine. None of it made any sense. How could it be? Dave Middleton had just been getting off work when his ex-father-in-law called him and told him Becky was dead. He raced over to his ex-wife's house. It had to be a mistake, but it wasn't. Jasmine's father, Rick Means, had called to give them the bad news. Then, after multiple attempts, they had finally reached the Bermudian police. Detective Superintendent Vic Richmond had delivered the official news. The young woman they had found out by Ferry Reach State Park was their daughter, Becky. She had been murdered, but they wouldn't tell her parents much else. Now, less than 24 hours later, they were on the same Air Canada flight their daughter had taken to Bermuda just two weeks earlier. It still didn't seem real, but the international media had already pounced on the story. Dozens of reporters and news cameras greeted them at the Bermuda airport as the police quickly whisked them away. But only a few hours later, a clearly distraught Dave and Cindy Middleton were back in front of those news cameras at a hastily convened police press conference. Dave told the media that the family had heard Bermuda was a safe country one of the main reasons they had allowed Becky to take the trip. And Cindy said she had talked to her daughter several times over the phone. Becky had told her mom that she was having a wonderful time and thought Bermuda was beautiful. Is it pretty? Cindy had asked her daughter. Mom, it's just like a dream, Becky had said. The Middletons were still in shock. But in their raw grief, they called upon Bermudians to help find the killer of their beautiful child. The police assured the Canadian couple they were going to put their full resources into finding the person or persons who had killed their daughter. Twelve detectives had already been assigned to the case, and no one was getting off the island until they made an arrest. And in Bermuda, they reminded the Middletons murder was still an offense punishable by hanging. Officials said nothing like this had ever happened in Bermuda. But the Middletons would soon find out that wasn't true. Just four years earlier, a young German tourist had been raped and murdered on the island. The killer turned out to be a convict on a work-release program from the local prison. The man was charged with first-degree murder, but prosecutors and the Bermudian court had later accepted a guilty plea of manslaughter. Now, their daughter was dead, another homicide victim in a supposedly safe paradise. But the Middletons would quickly come to realize that Bermuda had its own way of dealing with violent crime. Bermudian officials did not want Rebecca's murder to turn into another public relations nightmare for the small tropical island that relied heavily on tourism dollars. Simply put, murder was bad for business. For the island to prosper, its reputation as a safe destination was essential. The Department of Tourism had already sprung into damage control mode, and the island's tourism minister had met with the Middletons soon after they arrived. The Bermuda Premier had also sent a letter of condolence, saying that Becky's death was absolutely shocking and tragic. Secrecy. Becky's parents would soon learn was Bermuda's style when it came to police investigations. They wanted to know what had happened to Becky, but the police would give them little information. They were learning more from the press reports. The island's Royal Gazette newspaper announced there was a killer or killers on the loose in peaceful St. George's, and visitors were warned to avoid dangerous situations. The police were also warning women to be careful. Bittersweet words for a couple who had just lost their only daughter. Two days after arriving in Bermuda, Dave and Cindy Middleton were finally allowed to see Becky. Their beautiful, vibrant girl was almost unrecognizable her body bore multiple bruises and slash marks her face was swollen distorted and her gorgeous blonde hair gone shorn during the autopsy Cindy cradled the cold body of her daughter what kind of monster had done this And would he ever be caught? In that moment, it didn't even matter. All that Dave and Cindy knew was that Becky was gone forever. And they just wanted to take her home. On the next episode of Evil in Paradise, Bermudian police make an arrest in the murder of Rebecca Middleton. But the family, already victimized by the savage killing of their daughter, will soon find themselves re-victimized by the island's criminal justice system. Bermuda, it seems, is more intent on preserving its image as a pristine, safe travel destination than in delivering justice to a devastated family. The case will eventually attract worldwide attention and the interest of one of Britain's foremost human rights lawyers who also just happens to be the wife of the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom a young girl on holiday in paradise is brutally murdered and her killers are caught but will they ever pay for their crime and will a Canadian family ever get the justice they deserve. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening.